Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Is the Build Back Better Act doomed? What should we look out for in climate and energy in 2022? And why should we care about methane emissions? All that is coming up on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and I'm back with my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Later on in the episode, we'll be joined by Sarah Ann Smith, Program Director of Super Pollutants for the Clean Air Task Force. I'll talk to Sarah about the rise in methane emissions we're seeing around the globe, why that's so troubling, and what's being done about it. But first, we got to talk about the news of the day. So to do that, let me introduce Brandon Hurlbut, who is our Democrat on the show. He is the former chief of staff of the Department of Energy, advisor to President Obama. Now he's a political consultant, also a clean energy investor and a climate activist. Right, Brandon, we can say that you you thousand percent. Thousand percent. You works with the Solutions Project. You work with other progressive leaders, and I know you've been so influential in the clean energy. Did his PR space. handler make you add that to his intro, Julia? Yeah, yeah. I just really got paid actually. <laughs> and LA PowerFit champion. I think if you want to check it out, see my Instagram picture. Uh, yeah, that's actually pretty epic. We kind of joked about this last show, but Brandon competed in a boxing match and crushed it and won. And that belt was no joke. It was like straight out of a TV show. We'll put it on the political climate feed. I mean, like we love Arnold Schwarzenegger, a patron of the show, but uh, it puts the Conan sword, uh, you know, in, in competition there. That that That's some serious metal hardware on that belt. They were younger, faster and stronger. So it was a pretty shocking upset. <laughs> Clearly not. Anywho, uh, not your competitor, your colleague on our show is Shane Skelton. He is traditionally a Republican on this podcast, but also a business partner of yours, Brandon. They both work at Boundary Stone Partners. Shane is a Hill expert. You were formerly the energy advisor to Paul Ryan, Representative Paul Ryan. I know you've worked with other lawmakers. Um, And now you are our expert on all things happening in Washington, D.C. And I know you've had several other roles, Shane. uh, Any any major wins to report on your end? I noticed that you said I'm usually the Republican on the show, so I'm <laughs> kind of curious to unpack that when we get, when we get I past mean, the intro section. Well, what I meant was you are a Republican. He, well, but he exempts himself from like the insurrection, technically. That's so what I meant. He's a Republican except for when they're sacking the Capitol, I guess. <laughs> He brings the Republican perspective to the show. I mean, it's honestly a good reminder as we end this year that this show has evolved since we first launched it. I think we've talked about how it used to be more combative and presenting different sides of of a coin. But I think we all kind of come to understand that we're working on many of the same issues. It's just about figuring out how to do it. And I'm ready for some combat today, Julia, because one of the themes, and and we'll dive into the show, that we've been arguing about for for years, I think, has arisen again. And I'm curious to hear your take and Brandon's take and dive in a little deeper. So that's a little teaser for later. Oh, so you are throwing some punches this episode. Bring it. (laughs) Bring it. Brandon's ready. All right. Well, with those intros out of the way, I think we got to jump right into the issue of the day. 
The Build Back Better Act, which many lawmakers have been working on for many months, this is a marquee piece of legislation for Joe Biden. It's often billed as, you know, this massive social spending plan and climate bill, $1.75 trillion. We can talk about it more in the show, but there's a lot in there that's just really nuanced and detailed and will affect a lot of lives. Obviously, in the climate space, from tax credits that make it easier to deploy electric products in the home, which is 40% of emissions, this could have opened up that sector that has been slow to evolve. Build Back Better could have unlocked it, all the way to massive transmission projects to help move renewable energy and other energy around the country more efficiently, to a fee that coal companies would have to pay to help victims of black lung disease. And that's not even getting into the social programs that would, you know, make it easier for older Americans and people with disabilities to have care at home. And the list goes on and on. It is a very detailed piece of legislation, and some of those nuances, I think, are getting lost. But nonetheless, it is being put on hold now by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who went on Fox News Sunday and announced that he is a no on the Build Back Better Act, which comes after months of negotiations with other lawmakers and President Joe Biden. And his vote is critical in getting this across the finish line. Democrats need all votes in their party to get this done. And I think it caught a lot of people by surprise, although I'm curious to hear what you all think. So let's just start there. Shane, I'll go to you first. What is your first gut reaction on Joe Manchin's response to Build Back Better and putting potentially a a nail in the coffin on it? So, you know, I I would first and foremost say I don't think it's a nail in the coffin. It could prove to be, but I don't think we have enough information to say that yet. And I think a lot of good work went into this legislation from a lot of different corners, a lot of different advocacy groups, a lot of different interests. And so, you know, you'd hate to see one sort of press statement take that all apart I think there's clearly some friction right now. Everyone is going to be, you know, benefit from a couple of weeks downtime with the, however you spend your holidays and, you know, with your family or elsewhere. I think letting the temperature cool a little bit and coming back next year and thinking about, you know, what needs to be done will be important. I'm not prepared to concede that a lot of the good climate and energy policy in this bill uh, is dead. I think when Senator Manchin said he was a no, I'll take him at his word that he was a no on the product being debated at that moment. It is a large bill, Julia, as you alluded to. There is a tax package. Uh, Several other committees in Congress reported different provisions, some energy and climate related, some, you know, entirely unrelated and more focused on social issues and, you know, other uh, non-energy residential tax credits and tax benefits. So I I just want to start with saying that, you know, I I don't think we should say, hey, it's dead. Let's think about, you know, what kind of policy we can work on next year. I think a lot of that stuff will live on. The other thing, though, and this is where I was alluding to earlier when I said, I'll bring back an old fight that we used to have, is that sometimes you don't need everything to get something. And what I'm really nervous about is that if the press reporting is true, if what was said is true, that Senator Manchin offered you know, a $1.7 trillion package with all the climate and energy stuff still in it, and the only concession that he asked for was the child tax credit, that's worthwhile news to consider. Now, I'm not arguing the child tax credit is not important, and I'm not saying it doesn't help a lot of families. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that one of the struggles I've had in sort of working on climate policy over the last decade is that sometimes taking a first down, you know, matters. Sometimes getting in field goal range matters. And then, you know, obviously you want to score touchdowns when you can, but I think it's important to take wins. And if there is an opportunity to move even just the tax title of this bill that has a ton of great energy and climate policy, that's something that I think everyone should view as a win. And I'm really hopeful that when we come back in January and, you know, these negotiations start in earnest again, uh, Chairman Wyden's already said he's going to pursue a tax package. Senator Schatz has been outspoken about working with Senator Wyden and others on trying to get a lot of this across the finish line. 
So I hope that our posture doesn't go back to, you know, everyone saying we do what I want to do or we don't do anything. I hope there's room to look at this package and take the provisions. Some provisions could be really useful. Others could too, but take the ones that can get across the finish line and find a way to get something done in in 2022 because it would just be a real shame if all this effort was wasted. That's a, that's a good point. I just wonder about the politics of this moment. So a lot of progressives, I think, on Capitol Hill will feel justified in tying the fate of the infrastructure bill to build back better. They ultimately gave in and voted to move forward infrastructure. But they had warned from the beginning that this is what they feared, that if they did that, they'd lose all leverage. And then this kind of situation with Senator Manchin could happen. So to your point about making more alterations, I feel like the political climate, if you will, for that may it just may not exist right now because people will feel like they had already been you know, let down and like kind of fool me once kind of idea. That could be true, Julia. But what could also be true is had these two packages been paired together, neither of them would have gotten done. And there was some good climate and energy policy in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So I think I think it would be a shame if people didn't look at that $1.2 trillion and find some good things in there. Now, I want the stuff that's still left on the table. I think all you do, too. But it is worth considering that it is possible had those two things been paired together, neither would have been enacted by now. And we'd have a trillion dollars less going to work to eliminate climate harming emissions and and other toxic pollutants as well. Brandon, what's your takeaway? I want to make three points. Uh, One is, I think people make the mistake of trying to find a logic in a lot of this. You know, they're like, well, what Joe Manchin said about the grid, you know, is not true. And you know, you, you, you can see that even some of his stakeholders, uh, the United Mine Workers in West Virginia have come out and asked for Joe Manchin to support Build Back Better after this thing on Sunday. Goldman Sachs, after his comments on Sunday, revised uh, the numbers down on, you know, their projections for economic growth in 2022 based on Joe Manchin rejecting this. So, you know, everyone's looking for logic in this and it's pretty irrational. It's very emotional. I think this is an emotionally charged moment. I think there were some things between him and the White House that went on that pissed him off, right or wrong, that that was the outcome. And so, number two, I want to agree with a lot of what Shane said. I do think this is a good time for a little bit of space, dial down the emotion. I've talked to people in the White House. They're confident that after the holidays, they're going to get back at the table. Uh, what is Joe Manchin going to do when they come back to the table? Nobody knows. I'm not sure Joe Manchin knows. But uh, I would agree with Shane that I don't think this thing is totally dead. Maybe it will have to be slimmed down. I don't know. Or maybe they just need to repair uh, some hurt feelings and they can get back to where they were, which is, you know, Joe Manchin had previously committed to $1.75 trillion. The thing is, you know, on Shane's point, here are some top line numbers. On the child care tax credit, if you were to do it over the 10 years, it's $1.6 trillion alone, right? Climate provisions are half a trillion. Pre-K, $750 billion. ACA and Medicaid ex- expansion, $400 billion. If you take Joe Manchin at $1.75 trillion, that's way over, right? So you got to just figure out how to make that work. Um, and so hopefully they'll be able to do that. And they may end up having to settle for something short of the top line number. I don't know. Number three, the last point I want to make on this is that it's evidence still of a broken system. I think a lot of people would agree with Shane on like incremental taking wins as you go along would be nice. But given the how broken the Senate is, 
I just don't think that's possible. The reason they have to jam all of this into one bill and they can't do it piecemeal is because of this 60 vote threshold. And Republicans refuse to deal and compromise on these things. So, you know, if you don't get it all in one package, you can't pass it piecemeal because you can't get 60 votes on anything, you know, other than the infrastructure package. So that's what makes it challenging. It would be nice to break this thing up, but they have to do it all in one bite to get around the filibuster and use the reconciliation tool. Yeah, I would just say, Brennan, to be clear, what I didn't intend to say was people should check their ambition at the door and not try to do great things. I didn't mean that at all. I just mean, if something is the alternative to nothing, you know, then I would focus on the something. So those numbers that you broke down yeah. quite nicely. But you get one bullet on reconciliation, right? So like you, you can't take a small win on reconciliation because you've used up the entire bullet, right? Well, selfishly, I would want them to use that bullet on the energy and climate provision. So my view would be, you just said that's 500 billion. Let's do that package. That sounds attractive. That's something I'd like to see get done. And then truthfully, if there was the political will, they get a whole nother set of reconciliation bills next cycle. Next year, I'm sorry, not next cycle. They could do another reconciliation bill if they wanted to. Now, going through this political heartache, probably not worth it in an election year, but they could pass any version of this bill and then do another one right afterwards. Procedurally, that's permissible uh, in 2022. So again, I, I admit that I'm biased. I think everyone in the show knows you know, that we're all biased. That's why it's called political climate. But I would like to see the climate stuff passed. I would be happy about that. As one point of clarification there, Brandon, those numbers you laid out, how does that align with the 1.75 we've seen reported that the package is right now? Is that because of like the length of time policies that exactly take effect Exactly right. For? And that's okay. what Manchin is, he's pointing to this, he calls it like, it's gimmicks, right? You're just doing three year and then once it's baked in, he people just extend it because once you have that sort of tax credit in there, but he's he's asking for the full accounting and that's that's the basis for those numbers. And the full accounting is within 10 years or is it something beyond that? Because I thought this bill could only go up to 10 years anyway, which and then beyond that, it's kind of TBD on what happens to those policies. So that's right, Julia. The bills are only scored over 10 years. What Senator Manchin is saying, and again, just clarifying, not, not advocating, um, is that when you look at any sort of policy, so if we introduced a bill tomorrow that provided funding for some new solar technology, even if it was $50 million in 2022, the way that the Congressional Budget Office works is they create what's called a 10-year run, and that includes the authorization and the outlay. So in that case, the authorization would be $50 million in 2022, and the outlays would estimate the speed at which that money would be spent. So maybe $18 million to be spent in 22, $5 million in 23, so on and so forth. But that, that's just under the rules that Congress functions under. They have to do that. So what he's saying is the child tax credit is one year in the bill. And so it will only score at one year. But he's saying the whole bill is a 10-year window, and you know as well as I do, we're going to extend this every year. So if we want to talk about the cost of this package, let's look at all the programs over 10 years, not just the revenue-raising programs over 10 years and the spending ones over one year. That's not uniform across the bill, but I think he's saying assume that every policy in this bill goes through the same 10-year run, and that way we can get a net score. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I think tax credits are often renewed, but sometimes they're not. So I don't think you can assume 10 years, but that's the argument that he's making. That's actually super helpful because as someone focused on the climate and clean energy stuff, I did not realize that the child tax credit would only be one year as currently written in the bill, but then potentially expanded. I thought they were talking about extensions beyond the 10-year possible window, in which case I'm like, that's so far out. Why is that even something we're debating? But you're saying... It's not that. It's a couple of years away that you could see these policies renewed. 
In the current bill, it's only one year, but the expectation and even the talking points around it were that it'll continue to be renewed. And so it's a great you know, new benefit for American families. Brandon, what do you think of the way that Senator Manchin announced this going on Fox News on Sunday morning? I mean, I understand that he only gave the Biden White House a 30 minute heads up. It just seems very odd looking politically, you know, for his party heading into a midterm year. It just shows this major fissure within the party. Clearly, he was trying to make a statement. Do we read into that further, though, and what it might mean for Joe Manchin and what he was trying to say? Well, again, major fissure in the party. (laughs) Julia, you know, almost every Democratic member of the House voted for this. The president is behind it. I think every Democratic governor and mayor is behind it. And 49 Democratic senators are behind it. So we're really about True. an audience I, of one year. I, I um, concede on that. But more the it could come across as, as such. I've seen the term Democrats in disarray being floated around the media again, whether or not it's true. It's just like that yeah, starts to it's permeate. Not. It's that we don't have a partner on the other side. And with thin margins, we have to get 100% of all the Democrats. If you think back to to when LBJ and FDR passed these like major transformational policies, they did it with like massive margins in the Congress. You know, they didn't have to get every single Democrat. Joe Biden, you know, it's much more challenging for him that he has to get every single Democrat in this. The way he did it and on Fox News, it was, a, yeah, it was a poke in the eye, you know, for sure. And the White House, you know, my conversations with them, they were genuinely surprised. And I think you saw in Jen Psaki, the you know, White House press secretary, the response that they put out, the statement that they put out was pretty charged. You know, there were some bruised feelings on both sides of this. There's no doubt about that. You know, in any workplace that happens, you know, I'm sure I pissed Shane off about your still <laughs> partners, you know, and then you got to figure it out. You got to come back. Right. The, the thing about politics is like it can happen in a very public arena. Right. Like on yeah. the press, when you know, going to millions of people, you know, have you ever like gone out, you know, I'm sure around the water cooler and said something that you didn't you, you regretted? I'm sure that's happened for a lot of people. Unfortunately, politics can happen, you know, when a camera is on. And so I think there's going to be some repair going on that's already started. It sounds like in the conversation between the president and Joe Manchin on Sunday night, you know, so people have work fights, you know, and mm-hmm. then they come back and they figure it out. And, and hopefully, hopefully here they'll figure it out. But it was definitely there were hard feelings. There's no doubt about that. Do you think, Brandon, that Joe Biden will also lose supporters? I've heard people in the progressive community be super angry at him for saying that he could get Joe Manchin on board, not doing enough. People are concerned that he'll just follow up with executive orders and call it a day and build back better will die. And there's just been a loss of some momentum and I think trust in the process, maybe. What do you say to that? Yeah, the, you you can use the the power of the presidency is vast. You know, there are a lot of tools you have at your disposal to persuade. You know, the bully pulpit, very famous. But in the end, just like I can't make Shane do certain things. Like, I mean, he had his commitment, right? Joe Manchin, you know, went a different direction on Sunday and he's going to continue to try to get him. But like he can't make him do. And also, you know, Joe Manchin is in a state. His political fortunes are not tied to Joe Biden as much as every other Democratic senator and member of the House. Right. In those states, most Democrats now are elected in blue areas and, you know, purple areas. And so in order for their political futures tied you know, to President Biden and how well he does. Joe Manchin is in a very, very, very Republican state, right? It's the most, it's like one of the most Republican states in the union. So like if Democrats don't do well, it doesn't really matter for Joe Manchin, 
right? So, but again, these policies are popular. They're popular in West Virginia, right? So that is why Joe Manchin should do this because it would help him with his voters in West Virginia. They, they want these policies. And that's what's been, I think, so frustrating. But I get it. People are frustrated. Like, you know, we've been in this process for months and months and they want to see uh, a favorable resolution. I do. I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I was pissed on Sunday morning. I felt betrayed. Uh, it was a terrible way to wake up on the on the West Coast. I hate it. <laughs> you know, it's like your phone is blowing up at like 7 a.m. on a Sunday. My God. <laughs> Yeah, one thing I'd add to that, and you know, not that I'm here to be a, a staunch defender of Joe Biden, but I think activists around any issue on any side of the political aisle. So this isn't this isn't related to, to climate or environmental justice. This could be conservative social issues. They don't do their president any favors by trying to destroy their approval ratings because the reality of it is the presidency is not that powerful of an office, and I think people don't fully understand the limits of the power when it comes to military and how you interact with, you know, your overseas counterparts, the power is awesome and almost unbridled. But when it comes to your ability to move domestic policy, you need Congress. Even if you have Congress, the Supreme Court can strike it down. You have executive orders. They can be overturned. You have regulations. They can be pulled back. It's a powerful office. It's the most powerful one we have, but almost by design, it's not that powerful. And so if you criticize your own president for trying to carry out your shared agenda, and you weaken him in the polls and weaken him everywhere else, it actually inhibits his or her ability to do their job in the future. And I, and I think both sides would do well to learn that lesson. Yeah, it's not like Joe Biden is like, I could take it or leave it whether this thing passes. He's <laughs> got to do everything he can. He right. ran on this. This is his campaign platform, right? Like he's just as incentivized and motivated as anybody else to get this done. Uh, it's not from a lack of desire or effort on Joe Biden's part. That's for sure. I think one comment I would have on it is that Democrats, if they want to get this done, need to sell it. I feel like they move so quickly from infrastructure to their credit, moved very fast through putting together this massive bill. But I'm not sure people know what's in it. Like I've heard in the news recently that people knew what the Affordable Care Act was. They knew it was controversial. They liked it. They hated it. It was hotly debated, you know, Obamacare or not. And weirdly, that enabled that policy to be hashed out in the public sphere. Build Back Better, people don't necessarily know what's in it because it's climate and social. Where does one begin, one end? People have different views on those two elements of the bill and maybe just don't know the details. I certainly don't. And so I wonder if Democrats would do well if they want this to happen to just go sell it for a little bit. Make it so it's impossible for Joe Manchin not to vote for it. Because I know polls show that people support those policies, but do they even know that they live in Build Back Better and that that's what that is? Because people didn't know Obamacare was Affordable Care Act for a long time and maybe still don't. So I guess that would be my thought is, uh, yeah, rather than debating what's going to happen next, just go sell it for a bit and see if it lands. Yeah, I think we have a message delivery problem. We've talked about this on on the podcast in the past, you know, because the Democrats rely on the mainstream media to get their message out more than the Republicans do. And that goes through a filter. And that filter tends to emphasize horse race, who's up, who's down. They treat it like a game and they're less substantive. Right. Whereas the Republicans are much better at they have a message delivery system that goes directly to their consumers, directly to their customers, the voters. Um, And it's something that we need to improve on. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in this. And we should be doing the same thing for voting rights. Right. This is hugely important as well uh, and tied to climate. Right. And, you know, this is something that's popular, which should be easier to vote. We shouldn't make it hard for people to vote. Right. And we shouldn't have politicians picking their voters. Right. Which Mm -hmm. is what's happening. 
And so why aren't we like delivering that message? We have the moral high ground on it and it's a politically popular position to take, right? We mm-hmm. should be getting this to a point where voters are demanding this. Yes, I want to be able to do mail-in ballots. That sounds great, right? Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Well, this will be the last show that we air uh, in 2021. Hard to believe that this year's over. Wow. So until we come back on the airwaves in the new year, what's one thought you can leave our listeners with? I'll do Shane, then Brandon. You know, looking ahead, what's on your policy radar? You can pick from policy or going to industry. A lot's, a lot's been happening. What would you leave our listeners with to close out 2021? So I'm going to go with, um, I'm broken record on this, Brandon knows this, but for our listeners, I'm going to go with hydrogen. I was a real non-believer. I thought it was a technology that was always 10 years away. And even if it was here, it wasn't going to make a huge difference. And the more that I've seen you know, investment in hydrogen, both with the Department of Energy, but also the private capital that's flowing that way, and got a better understanding of its potential to decarbonize, those industrial processes just require so much heat where electrification is not possible. And then you look at flight and and heavy cargo shipping. I'm excited about it. And I think for the first time ever, we will see a material difference between clean hydrogen, not just hydrogen, but clean hydrogen's market penetration at the end of this year, you know, from where it was at the beginning of the year. All right. We'll put a pin in hydrogen. It's come up a few times. We got to do a proper deep dive on it, like we're going to do in a moment here on on the methane issue. But take your point, Shane, looking forward to hydrogen. I'll also put a pin in two other items. California's net metering policy change. That'll be perhaps evolving in January. There was a NEM3 decision that was issued that the industry is pushing back on in a big way. So we'll want to see what happens there in one of the country's largest solar markets. There are greenhouse gas emissions rules for new vehicles. That's another bright spot. That's something we'll want to look into again in the future. Um, But Brandon, final word here on what you're looking out for in the year to come. Well, it's a good transition, Julia, because you mentioned the uh, regulations for vehicles. I think you're going to start to see uh, the Biden administration be able to really start, you know, getting out the the regulatory authorities uh, and using their executive power. You know, one thing I learned when I was in the administration is I couldn't understand why those things couldn't go faster. Right. But there's a lot of work that has to go into it to do it in a legally responsible way. You have to go through the request for information process and then there's a notice and comment process. And then even after you get all of that and review all those comments, you know, with a very conservative Supreme Court looking to chop away at this stuff, you have to issue these regulations in a way that would stand up to very conservative judicial scrutiny. And so that takes a long time, you know, and and they had to start the administration. They were doing this uh, during the pandemic. They had to staff the administration. I think now 
you're going to start to see that in the next year, they're going to be able to really start moving forward on a lot of these things like the vehicle regs, uh, the procurement power that they're going to be using. I just think you're going to see a lot more activity regardless of what happens with the Build Back Better, right? Even if that does pass, this is not going to be in lieu of that. It's going to be complementary to whatever happens with Build Back Better or not. But I do think we're going to see a lot more activity on that front next year. I guess one thing I'd add is the future of electrification. There's a lot in the Build Back Better Act that would see things like heat pumps and electric appliances become more affordable for people. But we're already seeing action at the state and local level. Just in recent days, New York City uh, passed a gas ban. Uh, That's the nation's largest city putting a ban on gas, heat, and stoves in new buildings. That's a big deal. And we're going to see continued local action like that, I think, regardless, like you said, Brandon, of what happens to Build Back Better. So plenty on the horizon. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you guys so much for doing the show with me. (laughs) We got to do a holiday party. (laughs) Who's hosting? Shane's hosting. Shane just got a new house and there's a bar in his office. (laughs) So uh, we're coming to yours. It's uh, it's important to stay hydrated when you work, Julia. (laughs) Well, have a great holiday, you guys. Our show is not over, though. Now we're going to turn to my interview with Sarah Ann Smith at the Clean Air Task Force to talk about the crucial issue of methane emissions. As a note, we do talk about some elements of the Build Back Better Act, which we have to note. You know, the future is now uncertain, but nonetheless, those policies are still being considered and could still move forward in future, but wanted to just put out that caveat there. And as a final note before we switch gears, Political Climate is brought to you by Canary Media. They are our media partner, and they are a nonprofit newsroom that relies on listeners like you, on readers like you to support the great journalism that they do. And so you can go support Canary by heading over to canarymedia.com and consider contributing. All year-end donations will be matched by a generous donor, so know that your impact will be doubled. So I'm delighted to be joined now by Sarah Smith, who's the program director of super pollutants at the Clean Air Task Force. She sits on the board of the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, an international partnership of 71 countries and 78 non-state partners working to reduce methane and other potent climate pollutants. And she also serves on the steering committee of the U.S. Methane Partners Campaign. There is truly no one better to join us on this episode, where we'll dive into what methane means as an issue for our climate crisis and how policymakers are going about tackling it, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Political Climate. It's great to be here, Julia. I want to start by setting the scene of why we're talking about methane today. People may be aware that this is a potent greenhouse gas, but we're also seeing a lot more headlines around it with international action between the U.S. and the EU. It's also a hot topic in the Build Back Better negotiations happening. But first, tell us why this matters from a climate perspective. Methane is a super potent greenhouse gas. Every ton of methane heats up the climate more than 80 times as much as a ton of carbon dioxide. And the science is showing that by reducing methane, we could quickly reduce global warming. In fact, reducing methane is the fastest way to slow warming. It's the handbrake that we can pull. And that matters right now because we're already experiencing the impacts of climate change. The earth has already warmed more than one degree Celsius, and methane is responsible for about half of that on a net warming basis. So for me, top of mind this week is the Arctic with the release of NOAA's Arctic report card showing that we're losing sea ice quickly, record lows, and 
that matters because the sea ice is reflective and protecting our earth. So we have to slow warming quickly. Methane reduction is the biggest chance to do that. I hear what you're saying there. So methane is this big issue. Do you think it has been acknowledged as such in the past or is something shifting now in the public dialogue in recognizing that methane and other short-term, short-lived climate forcers are a problem or a bigger part of the solution anyway? I think you're right. Methane is finally starting to get more attention and more momentum. And it really reached a crescendo at COP26 in Glasgow, where more than 100 countries came together and committed to reducing this potent greenhouse gas, the first big multilateral commitment on methane. And that didn't just happen out of thin air. The scientists have been warning us about methane for years, but put a fine point on it in this year's IPCC report the Working Group One report that came out earlier this year, showed clearly that methane is responsible for a huge chunk of current warming and that reducing it is our biggest chance to quickly cut warming. And then the UN Environment Program and the Climate and Clean Air Coalition released a report showing that we already have the tools to cut methane by as much as 40 to 45% really quickly. So it's risen up as this big opportunity. Can you tell us where methane comes from? Just paint a picture of what the sources are and what we're going after here when we talk about solutions. So more than half of global methane emissions are coming from human activities. And it's mainly three sectors, agriculture, fossil fuels, and waste. And what about the Siberian tundra? Am I right in thinking that there's leakage of methane from there as well? There are natural sources of methane including tropical wetlands and melting permafrost and other sources. And unfortunately, as the earth warms, those sources are likely to actually grow. So another one of those feedbacks that we need to be watching. And another reason why quickly reducing the anthropogenic emissions is so, so important. Interesting. So it's kind of like a feedback loop. There's not only these human sources, but as Warming continues because of human-caused emissions. We actually unlock even more emissions that are trapped inside the earth and compound the problem. Exactly. So you mentioned that a number of different countries at COP26 came together for a methane pledge. Can you go into a little more detail on that? What exactly did they commit to? Are there any teeth to that agreement? And when we saw headlines about the U.S. and EU collaborating on methane, is that part of the same commitment or is that something additional altogether? Yes, this was a huge moment at, at COP26 and really exciting to see, yes, the U.S. and the EU at the head of state level collaborating on this with President Biden and President von der Leyen announcing this commitment, which has two main parts. First, a global economy-wide reduction goal of 30% by 2030. So getting methane emissions down globally from all sources by 30%. And it also commits participants in the pledge to taking all available measures domestically to help get this done. And so now it's exciting to see both the U.S. and the EU not just talking about this, but actually doing something. This week, the European Commission came out with their proposed methane legislation addressing emissions from a range of sectors, including the oil and gas sector. And it was, it was quite strong. And they're also considering how to potentially require importers of natural gas to meet similar standards, which would 
have a ripple effect regionally and potentially even globally. And then at the same time, we have the US, which is, of course, one of the biggest oil and gas producers in the world, coming out with strong proposed standards for their oil and gas production as well. So I'm hoping that we're reaching a bit of a positive tipping point here where we have enough countries regulating methane and many more stepping up as they look to implement this pledge. And so it's it's a single pledge that the US and EU led and then additional dozens of other countries joined on to? Exactly. I, I think by the time it was formally announced, almost 110 countries had joined. Are there any countries that signed on to the Global Methane Pledge that you think are particularly notable that maybe people would not have expected to engage? One that comes to mind is Nigeria, which I think a lot of people associate with oil and gas production, maybe even with flaring. And they not only participated in the pledge, but they're actually actively working on regulations to rein in the problem. So those kind of examples give me a lot of hope. And I have to ask, because when we talk about international action, there's a discussion of who bears the blame for some of these emissions and to what extent countries should act and the timelines in which they should act. Do we see those same tensions broadly around climate action playing out on the methane issue? Or are other countries more open to acting on methane because the solutions are more readily available and there are other benefits? What are the broader dynamics around negotiating on methane? I think one of the big dynamics is a recognition that, a growing recognition that we cannot actually wait until 2050 or beyond to slow warming, that we're in a a race to 2030. And when we look at different ways to slow warming over the next few decades, methane is by far our strongest lever. So I, I think countries that care about quickly slowing the impacts, are starting to really focus on this greenhouse gas and be more willing to come to the table. Plus, so many of the solutions are simple, available technologies that don't require RD&D or sort of new insight. They could be adopted today. I think that there's been a spike in emissions, in methane emissions specifically in the last few decades. Is that to do with economic development around the globe? Uh, Why are we seeing that? You're right. Methane emissions are on an upward trajectory and the concentrations in the atmosphere are spiking. Very concerning. And scientists are trying to unravel why this is happening. And it looks like part of it is from fossil fuel extraction and supply chains that release methane. Likely agriculture is also a piece and increased waste. So possibly also natural source increases. It's a real combination. But we know we can get a handle on a lot of the human-caused sources. So that's where I've been focusing my effort. As a final element here of setting up the problem, I've heard you talk about the Amazon tipping point. What is that? Well, there's a whole cluster of climate and ecosystem tipping points that could be reached if we warm past one and a half degrees Celsius and get into that two degrees Celsius range, which is, again, a a big reason why we have to rein in methane because we simply can't constrain warming to 1.5 without addressing the short-lived climate pollutants, including methane. So in terms of the Amazon, we've lost almost 20% of the forest. And there's concern that when we reach the 20 to 25% mark, it could 
stop being an effective carbon sink. Uh, so parts of the Amazon are already shifting from being a sink to a source. Also really worried about the loss of the remaining reflective Arctic sea ice, which, as I mentioned, is a protective barrier. And if we lose the rest, that could add a huge amount of warming. Got it. So the stakes are high. <laughs> and as I'm hearing from you, methane is one of our fastest ways to act here. And so going to the political dialogue, I've heard in policy discussions, let's put people to work capping oil and gas wells that have been abandoned. And this could be actually a job creator while addressing methane emissions. I think in the U.S. about a third of methane emissions come from oil and gas uh, industries. So to what extent do you think the idea of capping old oil and gas wells will help address this problem? And is it the job creator that we've heard people talk about? Well, we were pleased to see $4.7 billion in the infrastructure package targeted at plugging these orphan wells. It's very important from a climate perspective. And yes, absolutely a job creator. People will be required to do that work. And there's a lot of it with millions of these orphaned facilities across the country. But we can't stop there because the majority of the methane pollution from the oil and gas supply chain in the U.S. is, is still coming from new and existing wells and other equipment that is not orphaned. And that's where we really need the EPA regulations and also the methane charge that's being considered by Congress. I want to get into that in just one moment. Just to, again, frame where these emissions are coming from, you mentioned existing um, and operating oil and gas infrastructure. So what is venting and flaring? People may have even seen that on drives around the country or heard about it in the news. To what extent is that contributing to this problem and how can it be addressed? Unfortunately, sometimes operators that are after oil will simply release the natural gas that's found with the oil into the air as either straight pollution known as venting, or they'll light it on fire as a disposal mechanism, which is flaring. And we're talking about more than a billion dollars worth of gas being wasted and turned into pollution in this way every year just in the US. So it's a huge, huge problem. And a lot of the flares don't function well. So sometimes what should be a flare turns into a vent when it gets snuffed out and not relit. Mm. It's interesting to me, even from an industry perspective, from an oil and gas industry perspective of, you know, wasting a resource like that. Why would they do that rather than be incentivized to capture that gas in some way or, you know, avoid the venting or flaring? You're right. The gas is a product that could absolutely be sold or used on site to produce power or to do work. But unfortunately, what we've seen is that without binding regulations, without EPA phasing out these practices, banning them, the companies are more concerned about drilling the next well than responsibly extracting the resource. That's interesting. Is one of the thoughts I had kind of coming to this issue, not my area of expertise, but is that there is an alignment with industry um, wants and needs and that they could, in theory, capture and sell more product if they reduced leaks in, say, the pipeline system or avoided these vents and flares. You'd think there would be alignment there. But if I'm hearing you correctly, the incentive is not enough for the industry to act alone. There needs to be an additional policy layer. Exactly. And if you look at what's happened to 
methane pollution from the U.S. oil and gas industry say over the past 10 years, it's really not declined very much. And Mm. especially when you think about the rhetoric coming from the oil and gas industry. So they know about the solutions. They exist. But action isn't happening across the board, absent strong policy. Which is interesting because I think captured methane has the potential to be used in other industries, even fertilizer or in chemicals manufacturing. And maybe at the end here, we can get into some of that, um, what the solutions look like. And just to put a finer point on how we know this is an issue, can you walk us through how we're measuring methane emissions? Because I've seen in the news, okay, great, natural gas is helping drive down emissions in our electricity sector, say. But then there's this methane question, which it seems like we haven't had a really great grip on in terms of just how much methane pollution there is. So are we seeing the measuring techniques evolve to the point where we now know the extent of the issue and thus give policymakers the data they need to make and take action? There is some monitoring happening now, but there needs to be more and better. And that's a reason why I was excited to see some provisions in the Build Back Better Act that would actually give EPA more resources to do methane monitoring and to enforce standards. In addition, I'm excited about the improved satellite data that we're starting to get, which, yes, does show already that there are substantial methane emissions from the U.S., and that data is going to become more granular, it's going to become better and hopefully will help create a good foundation for action, not just here, but around the world. Okay, you talked about Build Back Better. So I really want to get into this now because I think it's not only uh, potential to address methane, but a bit of a sticking point politically. There is this methane fee that I think has survived until now. We're speaking uh, on uh, late December, December 17th. And as of now, this methane fee is in the Build Back Better Act. Can you tell us what it is and why it's up for so much debate? Sure. So the methane charge would help incentivize oil and gas companies to reduce their pollution, their methane pollution, and get rid of the pollution more quickly while the rules are coming into effect, and also go beyond what the regulations require. It's important to note that companies would not actually have to pay this charge because they could use cost-effective measures to control their emissions and get them down below the threshold in the legislation. And so that's how it works. There's a threshold that the bill would set and anything above that producers would be charged for? Exactly. Yes. And so how does that interact with what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing? I think there are already new regulations, if not discussions of new regulations. So how would that interact? I know you briefly touched on it there, but what is the EPA doing and how would it sync with this Build Back Better proposal? Yes, you're right. So this month, the EPA proposed new methane standards for the oil and gas sector, which is a really big step forward because they include the first ever requirements for the vast network of existing sources across the country. And the rules would strengthen the requirements from the Obama administration in 2016. We need those rules to create a level playing field across the country, require all operators to meet basic safety standards. But they take a while to kick in. So the charge is really useful because it could more rapidly incentivize companies to adopt the really low-cost available solutions. 
And then once the rules do come into effect, having that charge also ensures that companies are incentivized to go above and beyond. So what do you make of the argument that these two elements together, both new legislation and regulation, is too much and that the EPA should continue with its work stream, but that the Build Back Better Act doesn't really need to have this fee added as well. We've heard Senator Manchin, who's obviously a key player in Build Back Better and seems to have delayed negotiations in part over issues like this, uh, delayed these negotiations likely into the new year as a recording. So do you think he has a point here at all? I don't. I don't. I think these two policies would be very complementary and together very effective. And we can't ignore the the revenue-raising potential of the charge, too. It would be associated with more funding for EPA to help communities, for example, that have been impacted by this pollution to enforce the standards. And, and all of that's really valuable, too. So let's end on maybe a, a brighter note here. What are some of the ways that if methane is addressed, we could use it? Are there sort of innovations and, and breakthroughs that would allow us to you know, deal with that pollutant in a safe way or maybe even put it to work in some new industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every ton of methane pollution that gets captured, whether it's from an oil and gas site or from a landfill, can be used to do work, create energy as a feedstock for chemicals and so forth. And so this is one of those really, I think, unusual environmental issues where the pollutant is the product and there are multiple benefits of taking action. Methane is a potent climate pollutant. It's an ozone precursor. It's released alongside hazardous air pollutants that we could clean up at the same time. And it's energy and it's a job creator. So for all of these reasons, I'm so thrilled that the United States has prioritized this issue and seems to be moving forward very quickly with standards to address it. Awesome. I think the Clean Air Task Force had run numbers and found that methane from the oil and gas sector could be reduced by 65% with existing technology and done at a relatively uh, little cost to the industry. Is, is that right? Is that the research you guys are seeing? Yes, exactly. And so do you think this outlook is positive because there's technology available, there seems to be growing political will, or is the fight ahead for tackling methane going to be a tricky one? Well, I'm hopeful that the politics on this are really changing, in part because more and more people are waking up to the impacts and the accelerating impacts of the climate crisis and how important of an opportunity methane represents. But I'm sure there will continue to be laggards and continue to be naysayers and we'll press forward nonetheless. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on Political Climate. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our final episode for 2021. Thank you all so much for listening. I see these great messages come through on Twitter and an email, and it just really means a lot to know that this show is informative and helping you all in the work that you do. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so at P-O-L-I underscore climate at poly underscore climate on Twitter. We're also on Instagram, and you can find us on LinkedIn if you like. If you want to leave us an email, go to politicalclimatepodcast.com and leave us a message there. You can suggest guests, other topics you want us to cover. 
And as always, we really love your reviews wherever it is you like to listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. Please go there. Tell us what you like about the show. Leave us five stars. It helps us grow. So that's all we want for Christmas and really appreciate you taking the time to do that if you feel so inclined. Finally, a big thank you to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano with Canary Media. We cannot do this show without you. I am Julia Piper. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. We'll be back soon. <laughs>